will stop the steal. Today, I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We're just a couple of weeks away from the midterm elections, and we are continuing to learn more and more about the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. And it's been a while, so I wanted to discuss how these investigations and prosecutions are playing out. So I asked a Politicology fan favorite, someone who's following all of this very closely to come back on the show. Joining me today is award-winning congressional correspondent from CBS News, Scott McFarlane. Scott has interviewed presidents, senators, and governors. He has done and continues to do some of the most exhaustive reporting on this unfolding investigation and the prosecution of January 6th attackers. Scott, you are a busy man these days. So thank you so much for making the time today and welcome back to Politicology. Uh, This is the best part of my day. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) The last time we spoke, it was right around the one-year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol, and you were still at NBC. Do you want to talk a little bit about the transition from NBC to what you're doing over at uh, CBS now? Yeah, I'm now the congressional correspondent for CBS News, working... (laughs) just down the street from my previous office and desk. Um, The commute didn't change. Um, The focus is now remaining on January 6th, the Capitol riot, the prosecutions, the investigation, all that goes into it, but also covering the U.S. Congress, which in a midterm election year is dynamic and electric. Um, Makes for some busy days, but at CBS News, they have made a, a priority providing this platform and this bandwidth to talk about our reporting on January 6th. It's been 21 months, but in some ways, our heels are still grazing against the starting line of this investigation and this unprecedented prosecution. Uh, I remember one of the last times we spoke, you mentioned this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint of, uh, of various investigations, prosecutions. So where are we now in the marathon? Uh, and what is the landscape now from bird's eye view? Feels like we're at the first water break. We've made it a few miles. <laughs> um, the numbers tell part of the story. There are roughly 880 or so federal defendants in the U.S. Capitol attack. 880 people charged so far. Wrap your mind around that number. That's an enormous case. It's the largest criminal prosecution in U.S. history. There could be hundreds more arrests still. The Justice Department has indicated they have 
many more people they're pursuing, um, not to mention one person or people in particular, whoever left those pipe bombs outside the Democratic and Republican Party headquarters. That person hasn't been caught yet. Of those 880 people, roughly a third have pleaded guilty or been convicted at trial. Um, So some of the cases have been disposed of, but we are right in the middle of the biggest trial so far. What will likely go all the way till November is the trial of the accused Oath Keepers. This is that far right group that was accused of planning to attack January 6th, of bringing gear and weapons to the area, of bringing a game plan and expecting, if not provoking, the riot January 6th. Among those on trial right now is the founder of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes. Four co-defendants are with him. This trial is going to be a marathon also in itself, um, likely six to seven weeks long. And Stuart Rhodes' defense lawyer has indicated he's going to testify. So we'll spend the next few weeks focused intently on that. What is the prosecution hoping to win in that in that suit? What is he charged with? And what do, what do you think the strategy is? Prosecutors are hoping to win the highest level conviction so far in any capital riot case, a very rarely charged crime, seditious conspiracy, a conspiracy to plot to block the peaceful transfer of power in America. I try to say it out loud because it, mm. it's, it really resonates. This crime is, is, is one of a kind, an attack on the U.S. Capitol. Those who've been tried before, there've been about two dozen defendants who've gone on trial so far, largely faced lower level charges, not small charges, just lower level than seditious conspiracy. Some were accused of assaulting police. Some were accused of obstructing an official proceeding or disorderly conduct, unlawful entry, unlawful picketing and parading. So far, the U.S. Justice Department has secured convictions before juries in January 6 cases 100% of the time. Every defendant who's gone before a jury has been convicted so far on every count usually within a matter of hours, if you count the lunch break for the juries, So they're doing well so far, but this is a whole different stratosphere we've entered. This is a top line charge. Potentially, this could be the highest level charge of all. And this really lays down a marker because the Justice Department is trying something it doesn't do very often, trying a case for seditious conspiracy. But there are also other seditious conspiracy defendants to come. There are more accused Oath Keepers. There are accused Proud Boys charged with the same crime. And a conviction here gives prosecutors an awful lot of leverage in those future cases. Oh, my God. That's fascinating. You know, when we hear something like seditious conspiracy, it feels like rhetoric. It feels like hyperbole, right? Those are words you see, you know, on Twitter all the time. But, But to hear them used as the charge that the United States Department of Justice is leveling against someone who was involved in the January 6th riot is just, uh, it really underscores the magnitude of, uh, of what happened on that day. Let's talk about sentencing. Um, now that we've seen more guilty pleas uh, and convictions, what types of sentences have you been seeing since we, since we spoke last? Almost exclusively in the sentencings we've watched so far, and we cover every sentencing hearing in a January 6th case. But I think that I've, I've made that a priority because that's when defendants have a chance to explain themselves and answer for why they did what they did. And usually when they seek leniency, they get pressed by the judge to explain what were you doing? What were you thinking? Are you a danger in the future to do this again? I think the sentencing is where the real juice is in some of these court cases. So I try to cover every single one of them. The lion's share of the ones we've covered so far have been 
prison sentences you can measure in days and weeks, not months or years or decades. These have been lower level cases, largely people, again, who've pleaded guilty to truly pleaded guilty to unlawful picketing and unlawful parading, the lowest level charge offered. So when the judge has very limited bandwidth to sentence these defendants, usually it's kind of capped at six months and she'll or he will sentence the defendant to a few weeks, maybe a couple months in prison. In some of the larger cases that have gone to sentencing so far, defendants accused of putting hands on police, damaging something, taking something, injuring an officer. Now you can measure the sentences in years, um, usually a single digit number, six years, seven years, four years. This seditious conspiracy case is a whole different animal. This is one you could measure in decades. And that's why this is such a provocative case to follow, the one that's going on now and the others that are coming down the pike in fall or in winter. And it's also a burden for prosecutors. They don't have a lot of muscle memory in going to trial for seditious conspiracy. Thank goodness they don't have a lot of practice at this. So they're they're kind of flying uh, or in the air without a net. Um, That said, they have quite a batting average so far before these juries. What is the maximum sentence for a seditious conspiracy conviction? I you, you caught me unprepared on that one. I, I uh, believe it's I believe it's two decades, or it's somewhere in the it, it's somewhere in the vicinity of twenty years. But um, you'd have to check me on that. The last time we spoke, uh, we were still learning a lot about what happened on January sixth. There was new information all the time being presented by prosecutors. Can you give us a sense of how much new information we're still getting when each of these cases goes to trial? or when we get a new brief filed, or are most of the new charges, is all of this the same information that's being recycled? I remember one of the things that you touched on in the past was, you know, uh, just just the, the the volume of information that was available to prosecutors, that, that, that this was really a filtering and a sorting task more than it was a discovery task, right? Because everything was captured. There was videos all over social media and 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 the, you know, the project of figuring out what happened wasn't about finding hidden information, but rather sorting through the you know mountain of data that was already available. So, can you give us a sense of how how much new stuff we're still learning and where they are in that in that project? That's what's so unique, what's so challenging for prosecutors at this moment is that this case has an unprecedented volume of evidence. I mean, so many of these defendants had their phones out. I mean, we're, recording video images, posting about it in real time. And then when they left the Capitol, continue to share videos and images and post about it in real time. So the volume of evidence is actually a challenge for prosecutors. Yeah, you're right. They have terabytes of of evidence to share with defense lawyers. Thousands, thousands of hours of video. You think about how you'd watch thousands of hours of video. You'd have to donate your life to it. Um, They have to share that with defense lawyers who have to go through it and find out what's important, what's exculpatory, what's relevant, what's something they'd want to argue or not argue if this thing went to trial. That's why we're 21 months later and a fraction less than half of the cases charged so far have been closed because that issue hangs over all of this. The defense lawyers in that aforementioned Oath Keepers case, that seditious conspiracy case, were banging the drum with the judge month after month saying, you got to delay this trial. You got to delay this trial. We have to get through all of this evidence. And the judge did give them some delays, but also kicked back saying, you've had time to go through it. Not every ounce of video is going to be relevant to you. Just talk to your clients. They'll help you find what part of this evidence is going to be relevant to you. 
let's they were there they were they were there and they don't even argue that they were there i mean they're 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 kind of stipulating to that so the judge gave him a little bit of deference but said come on you can get through this it's actually a challenge for the justice department because they also need to know what they don't know and and they've had you know they've they've acquiesced to these delays as well saying "We, we we need to work our way through this so as the cases keep coming in and there are new defendants coming in each month. New charges, new arrests, almost on a weekly basis, if not a semi-weekly basis. Um, it really reinforces something we've noticed in the pattern of the first set of cases, that this election denialism, this claim of election fraud, was such a, a pass blocking for all of these defendants. So many were there under the umbrella of they didn't believe the, the election results were real, and they were there to stop the steal or stop the count. Whether they genuinely believed it or not, that's what they were arguing was their reason for being there. It really speaks to the potency of that issue. And it hasn't gone away. I mean, as we watch this election cycle play out, there are any number of candidates, nominees of major parties, of, of a major party, who continue to deny the 2020 election results. And that issue, that danger remains. So as we watch more cases come in and continue to see defendants say, I was there to stop the steal or the election was rigged, you recognize how potent it was that day. It was, there wasn't this potpourri of different reasons that brought people to the Capitol. They were all there, or many of them were there to say, we want to stop the steal. So as that election fraud denial or election denialism and election fraud claims continue, the danger and the risk to future elections and future threats to public officials remains. That's a really good segue to something else I I wanted to talk to you about. I've seen this pop up on your Twitter feed recently. Uh, Defendants are are notifying the court that they could mount a, uh, what's called a public authority defense uh, for their actions on January 6th. Can you unpack what that means? What is a public authority defense and what do you make of that? Some of the defendants are notifying the court they may go forward with a public authority defense. Really haven't seen one try it or try it successfully yet, actually, when push comes to shove and they get in front of a jury. A public authority defense, um, best as I can tell from the defendants who are arguing they may try it, is this argument that they were there because Donald Trump told them to be there, because the then president of the United States directed them to go, and that there was a public authority behind what they did that day. Now. Let's set aside the remarkable challenge of arguing that before 12 American jurors. Um, Put that aside because that's a challenge. And that's one of the reasons we really haven't seen a push towards people doing this at trial. Um, There are any number of legal experts who say that's absolute bunk. And and, and what's more, one of the things that's come up in these higher level cases, including the Oath Keepers defendants, where they say, we were there in case Donald Trump invoked the Insurrection Act. We wanted to be there in case the, the then president needed us. The prosecutors have said is, but he didn't invoke the Insurrection Act. Let's put aside all the other issues we have with that argument. He didn't actually do it. And I think if you try to bring this public authority defense before a jury, what even the prosecutors would say is, show us in the former president's speech where he said, beat police where he said, bring your bear spray, your guns, your knives, hockey sticks, and crowbars with you. Um, There's any number of hurdles there, but it's not lost on me, Ron, is 
defendants are looking at the playing field and seeing that every single one of the others who've gone to trial have been convicted. It doesn't rule out the possibility they may try a different type of defense when it's their turn. It's kind of like spaghetti at the wall at this point for some yeah, of them. It is. <laughs> and it, it, it also, recognize the stakes here on some of these cases. Some of the defendants who've talked about public authority defense, I have one in mind, is facing a lower level charge. So if he chooses to go to trial, he's facing the prospect of a prison sentence you could measure in months. He's not defending himself for his freedom for life. I mean, there's different levels of cases here. If you saw a seditious conspiracy defendant, a top-line defendant facing decades in prison try this, that'd really be an adventure. I'm also struck by the position it would put the prosecutors in when if one of the defendants does make a public authority defense and tries to, you know, tries to do it persuasively. I'm struck by the position it puts prosecutors in in uh, and arguing that Trump would not be responsible for their actions. It's just the juxtaposition is fascinating given the, the trajectory, right? The, 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 the overarching uh, direction of the prosecutions, which is leading up to Trump himself. Yeah, and this, is, this has been a balancing act for the Justice Department throughout these prosecutions. You know, what do they say about the former president in the cases, in the filings, in an open court? And I've heard little moments. There's been little glimpses of that. There was a January 6th court hearing, a sentencing in which the prosecutors were arguing that the former president is an ongoing threat. His election claims, his election denialism, um, the, the rabid nature of people who believe in that are an ongoing threat. That's something they said on the record. Um, they have a chance at all of these arraignments, or I should say all these plea agreement hearings and all these sentencings, to make a more forceful argument. We need to send Joe Blow away for 10 years because the former president could, you know, could be back in power and is you know, talking about pardons and, is, and is, a, is an ongoing threat to American democracy and was a criminal. They could be saying those things, but they're not. So there's a balancing act there. They have to be careful and judicious about what they say on the record about the former president. If for no other reason, then they don't want to be viewed as political. And that's something the Justice Department prioritizes. And to keep their powder dry if and when they do get to, to get to a decision about whether or not to charge him. Um, while we're on this topic, can you talk about the threat environment that members of Congress are facing right now, particularly in light of the fact that people who attempted to stop the government from functioning believed they were doing it at the direct order of the president of the United States? Yeah. One of the things I've done as congressional correspondent for CBS News is um, made it a priority to look at congressional members' safety because the threat of January 6th was a singular moment in American history, unparalleled, but the threat to American democracy and American leaders didn't end January 7th. Um, reviewed records from the U.S. Capitol Police, which showed in one year's time, in the year after January 6th, they investigated nearly 10,000 threats against their protectees, members of Congress, um, or people who work in the U.S. Capitol. 10,000. Now, that's, that's an increase, obviously, from previous years. It's not, a, it's not an unprecedented in, uh, number. They've, they do thousands a year, but the increase is notable and the concern is notable. And the concern in talking to members of Congress and their staffers, which we do every day, is clear that they feel, especially actually when they're outside the dome, when they're outside that shield of security, they really feel like in some cases they could be vulnerable at the airport, on the plane, at their homes. 
The U.S. Congress has responded by ratcheting up funding for members to have more ability to secure themselves in their homes, in their district offices. The U.S. Capitol Police have made a priority to dispatch or decentralize some of their force to be out in the communities, to be out near members' home offices to help ensure their protection there. And this is a thing. I mean, this is, this is a dynamic that's unmistakable. You can see it in the number of people being charged with threatening members of Congress. The vulgarity, the vile nature of those threats is unequivocal and dangerous. And it's, it's the reality of where they are right now. It didn't stop January 6th. And I think try to, they would emphasize to you that the horrors of that day weren't the end of them feeling at risk for attack. Yeah, we when we talk about January sixth, we often talk about it on the show as as uh, really the 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 end of the beginning, um, because it it's it's the only way to look at it really. So over the summer, Scott, we saw the January sixth committee lay out the events leading up to January sixth, and demonstrate some of the actions that took place at the Capitol complex and the West Wing. They did all this in prime time. Um, where have you seen overlap? between the committee's work and the prosecutor's work? Because, uh, you know, uh, from some of the folks I talked to, there isn't a whole lot of coordination going on behind the scenes. They're, they're completely independent. And, uh, and there's surprisingly very little information actually being shared from, from, from what I've heard. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that situation? And, and is there overlap or coordination going on that we should know about? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. Um, there's been some acrimony about the lack of sharing between the January 6th Select Committee, a congressional investigative committee unlike any before it, and the U.S. Justice Department, which is still in the middle of the largest investigation in its history. Um, these, are, these are uncharted waters they're both in, and they're talking to some of the same people. You know, the House Select January 6th Committee has made it known that they're interested in the far-right groups, those Oath Keepers, those Proud Boys we talked about earlier, the ones being charged with seditious conspiracy. They've been on the radar of the House Select Committee. The committee wants to know what gave rise to this historic moment. And if far-right groups were part of the planning, if they were part of the plotting, they were part of the dynamic that gave rise to this event. So they've talked to Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. They've done depositions, lengthy ones with people like Stuart Rhodes and Proud Boys figure Enrique Tarrio, both of whom are charged with seditious conspiracy by the Justice Department. So it's not hard to imagine the Justice Department would love to see the full transcript of those interviews done with the January 6th committee. There's been some back and forth. The chairman of the committee is saying if the Justice Department wants to look at our transcripts, and the Justice Department has indicated it does, you know, we'll find an arrangement for them to come in and review our papers. We're not going to give them our stuff. And the committee, one committee member, Adam Schiff, you know, had, had expressed frustration at a recent event saying, do your own damn investigation. You, know, you, you, should be, you should be far along in this too. You shouldn't need us. Um, but there, it, it's, not also, it's not hard to imagine they're going to mend some of these fences. And, and, and they, they both do seem to have the same aim, which is to find out what happened. Who was responsible for this? How far did it go? How far up did it go? Um, I, I, I'd be surprised if they didn't have some meeting of the minds. But that it hasn't happened yet fully um, is indicative of, 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 of a bit of an impasse. 
Yeah. I mean, if you're just an ordinary observer, uh, what, you know, following this story, you're scratching your head at the, at the sort of non-coordination here. It just seems like an unnecessary turf battle, but maybe there are other sort of reasons, uh, other reasons for that, but it does, it's, it's, it does. It's not hard to imagine a few of them. I apologize for yeah. interjecting. Yeah, please. Um, first of all, I mean, these are different branches of government. Um, so you've got the legislative branch and the executive branch. There's a rich history in America of the branches being separate and of, um, also keeping a close eye on their own turf. Um, also, the committee has been challenged to ensure it doesn't look any more political than any committee is going to be already. They, they don't want to be saturated with political um, dynamics. I mean, there are, there's already enough of those in Congress, and this committee is certainly not immune from it. If it looks like they're you know, an extension of the Justice Department, it's easier to criticize them as a campaign tool or a campaign arm against Republicans, which they want to avoid. They want their investigation to be as devoid of politics as is, as is practically possible. So there, there are reasons why there may be some distance between the Justice Department and the Congressional Committee. But boy, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, they're talking to a lot of the same people. You'll recall at one of those summer hearings, one of the witnesses was a defendant, one of the accused rioters who pleaded guilty and was sentenced um, and, and I should note that defendant from January 6th, who testified publicly at a hearing of the January 6th committee, um, got leniency at sentencing for doing so. The judge gave him credit, says, you deserve credit. We're going to keep you out of jail. Uh, whereas other like similarly situated defendants did have to go to jail. So um, in that sense, <laughs> there was a connection. <laughs> well, that, that actually is the other thing I wanted to ask you about on this, on this point, um, uh, which is how the, how the work that the DOJ has done and the convictions they've won, how that fills out the picture of what led to January 6th. Because if someone has only really paid attention to the committee's public hearings, if that's been your exposure uh, to the story, I wonder what major pieces of information they would have missed from the prosecutions. Are there a few things that that people ought to know if they haven't been, uh, if they've only really been watching the, the public hearings of the J6 committee? Yeah, but the Justice Department has connected some dots inside some of these accused far-right groups. And the Justice Department has done a good job explaining the kind of how these networks were built or who was at the center of them. The committee hasn't gone yet into the, the, the woods yet on that issue of, of what was the, you know, the, the, the layering of these far-right groups. Who were they talking to? Who in power were they talking to? The committee hasn't really done that yet, but they also have a final written report coming later this year, which... I expect they will talk a bit about those far-right groups the way the Justice Department has at trial. And I, and I keep going back to that because we are now, Ron, 21 months after the attack, and the top line of this totem pole, <laughs> the top of this totem pole, is far-right accused seditious conspirators. That's how high up the Justice Department has gotten. That may be as high as they go. That may be the most powerful or entrenched people they charge for this attack on the U.S. Capitol, or it may not be. Was there somebody above them? That's the open question that's been s sitting there since you and I last spoke. And we haven't gotten an answer to it yet. Maybe as this trial goes on, maybe as the defendants make their case in the witness stand, maybe they'll give us an indication if, they, if anybody's going to go higher. But I got an awful lot of dissatisfied people who engage with me in person and on social media and by phone who say they're not satisfied if the Justice Department finishes its work there, 
and it says, this is as high as we're going to go. I'm not making an argument that they should go any higher. I'm just telling you there's going to be some subset of Americans, perhaps a large subset of Americans, who will be dissatisfied if those who brought tactical gear and staged guns outside the city limits is as high as this unparalleled prosecution goes. Yeah, and many of them are listening to this podcast right now, shaking their fists. (laughs) So this week, uh, CBS News obtained access to an audio recording from June of 2021 by former D.C. officer Michael Fanone. People will remember him uh, from the hearings, who was injured during the attack. And in that recording, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy urged against, quote-unquote, politicizing the attack. Can you talk about that meeting uh, and McCarthy's push against politicizing an attack to overthrow an election at the request of a losing presidential candidate? This was an important meeting in a capital complex that has nothing but meetings all day and all night, all week. This one is actually um, singularly important. It happened in late June, 2021. Um, during the, a week in late June, um, Officer Fanone, Michael Fanone, that DC police officer who was tased and beaten suffered a heart attack and traumatic brain injury trying to fight off the riotous mob January 6th, was joined by one of uh, the other police officers who responded that day, U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, and was joined by the mother of the fallen Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who died of a stroke the day after the Capitol attack. As they went office to office to meet with members of Congress, urging for a robust investigation, an independent committee to investigate January 6th. There's a surreptitious recording of their meeting with Kevin McCarthy, audio of which was obtained by CBS and by others as well, in which McCarthy is heard, muffled, but heard, urging against the uh, letting politics consume or take over the January 6th investigation or to become a component of it. And Fanon is heard kicking back in the audio saying, it's, we're already there. It happened at the Capitol. It's impossible to divorce politics from January 6th, that the members of Congress have to be bigger than that, have to want to find out what caused this anyhow. And you can hear the visceral frustration um, with the response. And there is a later meeting detailed in Officer Fanon's new book about his meeting with Senator Lindsey Graham, the Republican from South Carolina, about the response by police on January 6th. And according to Fanon's book, Graham interjected to the officers saying, we gave you guns. You should have shot them. And Officer Fanon has since, including with CBS News, voiced his frustration with that line of argument from Senator Graham saying, doesn't seem to have a good grasp on police policy and police protocols. You know, just open fire in a crowded space. Um, and Officer Pannone's book, which is newly released, goes into some detail about these meetings. They didn't get that commission. They didn't get that independent January 6th commission, like the 9-11 commission uh, that happened many years ago. Instead, we are left with the alternative, which was the U.S. House passed this House committee with seven Democrats and two Republicans, which has been predictably painted as political, which Republicans are almost exclusively boycotting. Um, that's what we're left with. So their lobbying efforts were unsuccessful. And I recall covering those meetings back in June 2021. At least Leader McCarthy took the meeting. Those, that group of officers and the officer's mother were turned away um, or not received by some members of Congress. I remember that being a point of frustration for them. Um, and I'll also just note, just to button up one thing about the you should have shot him advice given to 
members of police, there they, they, was not a tenable idea, even conceivably. I mean, first of all, the police were vastly outnumbered. Starting a firefight in the middle of the Capitol is a wild notion. And some of the people in the mob that day were armed with guns as well. Yeah. I mean, also, Senator Graham sits on the Judiciary Committee. Overseeing of all law places. enforcement. Yeah. That, <laughs> Overseeing law enforcement. I think the, the Officer Fanone has leaned into that as part of his criticism. Um, we should note just, uh, it's important to do so, that we attempted to get comment from Senator Graham, but I have not yet heard back from him. Okay. Under the radar, there have been <laughs> so so many different pieces to the January 6th story. You know, it, it, it kind of makes your head spin. It's easy to lose track of all of the different storylines. Uh, and now that we're nearly two years out, like you said, 21 months from the actual event, um, I wonder if there are stories that you've seen just fly under the radar. And, you know, you're keeping a closer eye on this than just about anybody uh, is there anything you wish was getting broader coverage than it is? Are there any threads that aren't being picked up on at the national level? Um, what what do you what do you think about that doesn't get uh, doesn't get enough light of day? Really glad you asked. Two different things. First of all, one of which we touched on. So you were asking the right questions. This is a kinetic threat to the safety of our elected officials, not just members of Congress, secretaries of state, um, state lawmakers, poll workers feel endangered this election cycle because of the, the election denialism and the potential for violence and threats. I mentioned that number earlier. I think it's important. Nearly 10,000 threat investigations against members of Congress in one year. That's a remarkable number. Um, and that's ongoing and potentially increasing. So I, I'm glad you asked about it. I still think that's the biggest issue that goes overlooked. As we look back at that one day and the horrors of that one day and look forward to an election and, and perhaps newly elected officials, this is a tough job. This is a, this is a hell of a job they're working because they get for showing up for the day, no matter your party, no matter your state or your district, a whole bunch of threats against you, potentially against your family, potentially against your kids. Try working in that environment for a while. So I think that's something that we, we can't emphasize enough. We've made it a priority to talk about it a lot, CBS News Platforms. The other thing that I find fascinating that um, I, I wish other reporters were given the, the, the luxury of time to cover, as I've been, is it's not the top line defendants in these criminal cases that I find most fascinating. To my surprise, it's the, for lack of a better phrase, rank and file defendants. The, um, if you're a, the, the ones facing just the misdemeanor charges. When you go through their cases, there are interesting character studies there. Perhaps because they're facing such low-level charges and the potential for such limited jail time, if any, they can be pretty frank and honest <laughs> in their filings and when they face a judge. And I listen to all of them. I read as many of them as possible. And it's hard to escape the reality here that a lot of them really do believe this stuff. They really do believe in a whole range of things. The election was fraudulent, despite there being no evidence of that, despite that claim being baseless. They really believed it in their bones, in their DNA. Um, and to a degree, some of them are cagey or equivocate when asked if they still do, even when saying something more pleasing to the judge could ensure them leniency. They kind of hedge to their own risk at their own peril. 
There are QAnon supporters among them who likely, if not clearly, have not disavowed that and are still still subscribing to it at their own detriment. There's this series of defendants who have lost their jobs, lost their families because of their arrest. Make that clear at sentencing. But when the judge presses them on Donald Trump, they still don't lean in and say, I was, I, I've changed my view on him. Or I, 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 I think he misled us. It's such soft criticism of the former president when push comes to shove for these defendants who've lost so much of their lives. And, and, and a whole bunch of them, Ron, I mean, a whole bunch of them complain in their filings or at sentencing about their newly found Google problem, that their name is quite something on the internet, and that's going to dog them for years and decades to come. They say that, and, they, and to a degree, they're trying to evoke sympathy or just make clear to everybody involved what their situation is, um, but they still are gentle if they criticize the former president at all. And I'm not saying criticizing him would help them in their case. The judges are not going to take your political views in, 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 into mind when they sentence you. But this is your chance. You have an audience. Media is there. Your family's there. Justice is there. The judge is there. You can say what you feel. And it's still so muted. Scott, um, before I let you go, I just, I want, you know, on a personal note, um, uh, thank you for the, for the just dogged reporting that you've put into this. And I wonder what the most challenging thing about all of this has been for you to, to, to cover it. I mean, this is a, this was a really dark day in American history and for you to spend so much of your waking time, just, you know, waste deep in it, that, that has to weigh on you. And so I, I just, I wonder how you, um, you know, how you slog on with it. <laughs> it's, it, it's gotta get you down. And, and so anyway, I just, I just wonder what the, what this experience has been like for you these 21 months. There is a part of it that'll get you down because you recognize that some of this is just so stubborn and so resilient. These beliefs that led to this attack still exist. And as I mentioned moments ago, some of these defendants are still unapologetic about everything that happened on January 6th, which, which can't help but make you worry about the future. You know, what's life going to be like on January 6th, 2025, 2029, 2033, if this set a precedent or created a pattern? And if the intransigence of some of these beliefs that even an arrest, a Google problem, the prospect of prison, losing your job, losing your wife or husband, if that doesn't change you, um, where are we headed? What's our trajectory? Something else, though. I mean, when you, when, you, when you report out on any story, you recognize who is engaged with it. You recognize as a journalist who is consuming your work, who's consuming your news. And there's a subset of Americans who don't want to hear a word about this and won't listen to it. Not because they, they think it's unimportant, but they view everything that touches January 6th, even a criminal prosecution, as political. And some type of concept or action that's motivated by politics. Um, I get some unsolicited feedback <laughs> from people who say, you know, you're just being a stooge for a, a political party, or you're just covering this to try to embarrass so and so, or you know, to own a group of uh, Trump supporters. I'm covering a criminal case in the courthouse that's on my beat. 
I cover Congress. I cover the federal courts. This is an attack on Congress that's playing out in the federal court down the street from the U.S. Capitol. I'm doing my job. And when you have the largest criminal prosecution in American history and the most open criminal prosecution in American history, there are still 500, if not more, defendants waiting for their day before a judge or a jury. That's a story. That's news. And it needs extensive, comprehensive coverage. But there are some Americans who don't want to hear it and will shut it down. They'll change the channel. They'll turn it off. They'll, they'll mute you in whatever way and whatever mechanism they can use. And that's troubling because I'm quite certain I'm right. This is important. This is one of the largest news events of our generation. And people need to be willing to listen to it, whether they like it or they don't. And I go back to, to something that my father uh, instilled in me when, when my father was alive, we watched, we'd watch sports together because again, father and son, we'd watch football on Monday nights together and he'd watch ABC's Monday night football. And he used to get so frustrated with Howard Cosell, who was this polarizing sportscaster who always liked to push buttons and get people all fired up. It was incredibly enjoyable, very engaging. And he was a genius, but he'd take you off too. And my father used to get all frustrated. And I'm like, dad, why do you, why do you listen to this? Why don't we put on the radio or, or change the channel? He's like, nah, I want to hear what he says next. And there was a mindset then. My father made clear to me, he's like, whether you like it or not, you need to listen to it. Whether it fires you up or whether you find it entertaining or engaging or important, you need to listen. And we're not there anymore. We're consuming news out of our own media silos. We're consuming news only that we like only that we want to hear, anything that pushes our buttons, sports, news, politics, or otherwise, we're more inclined now to tune it out. And I'm troubled as I cover this, that there's a certain percentage of Americans who may agree it's important, but don't want to hear it. So they won't listen. And I think that's a, that, that's a bad trajectory as well. Well, we're listening, and I'm grateful for the work you're doing. I know our listeners are as well. Um, Scott, uh, it's been wonderful catching up with you. Likewise. I hope it's not nine months again before we <laughs> before let's make we sure do this, it's but, not. Uh, yeah, let's let's make sure it's not. You're welcome back anytime. Um, and before I let you go, where should everyone go to follow your work now at CBS? Um, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, tell us all the places they should find you. Many, many platforms. And one of the things I adore about CBS News is it gets me back to my roots in radio. I got my start in radio for many, many years and CBS News Radio is unparalleled. And so every hour on the hour, <laughs> the opportunity to hear me talking about these criminal cases in the January 6th committee, um, that's, that's, that's the most convenient and immediate spot. Of course, on the CBS Evening News, CBS Mornings and our wonderful CBS Saturday and Sunday morning shows and often hosting and guesting on the CBS News stream, which is on your CBS News app. Every night at 5 p.m. is our politics show, which is deep in enterprise and January 6th reporting, 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you want to send you some uh, kind words of encouragement on Twitter, what's your handle? Ah, the same place where the people troll me. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I get, I get <laughs> lots of messages. Trying to balance it out, Scott. <laughs> It'd be nice. It'd be nice to get somebody saying something more than I'm a, 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 a crazy man. Uh, McFarland News is the handle. Terrific. All right. Scott, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. 
Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.